This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Martin Strong, in for Shane. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, could your favorite smell help prevent dementia? Yona Budd, therapist and host of At Your Best, tells us about the incredible power that smell can have on your brain and why it's so good at jolting our memory. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, senior fellow and director of foreign affairs, national defense, and national security at the McDonald Laurier Institute, gives us his thoughts on China's foreign interference strategy and tell us, tells us why it differs from Russia's. Are you okay with weddings? How about fishing? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Uh, time to talk about smells. And our, our sense of smell, out of all of our senses, is the one that is tied to our memories. And I'll give you an example of that. Jim from Winnipeg texted us. He said, the best smell in the world for me is outside on a winter's night, minus 20 degrees, and there is a fire burning in the fireplace, pumping out the smoke, out the stack, as the smell lingers. Pure, natural ecstasy. And to me, that's less about the smell, more about the experience. And that's what we love about these aromas. And now, um, researchers from the University of California, Irvine, have found that a form of aromatherapy can actually help improve older adults' memories. What they did is they take an evocative fragrance like citrus or cedar and made it waft through the bedrooms of older adults for two hours every night for a total of six months. And their memory skills improved in a major way. In fact, they saw a 226% increase in cognitive capacity compared to the control group, the ones that didn't get the smells. They now believe it might even be a way of deterring dementia. And with me now to talk about the power of aromatherapy is performance coach and therapist Yona Budd. He is also the host of At Your Best with Yona Budd, heard Saturday evenings on the Chorus Radio Network. Yona, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I, I kind of get the feeling that we're just starting to understand the power that our sense of smell has in the way we navigate the world and our lives. Would, would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that uh, we're now understanding it better. I think that we've known for a very long time, back into probably the early days of man, uh, that when things smell good, we tend to feel a little bit better. And uh, now we're understanding what that really feels like uh, psychologically, sociologically, and, and, and in terms of uh, brain power and, and mental, uh, uh, mental health uh, support. Um, and I, I think the more that we understand that there's other senses at play, same would be said for sounds and, and certain tastes and certain visual interactions we use all the time as therapists, right? Uh, so ask somebody to close their eyes and think about a great place they were at to help calm them down. Well, now close your eyes and... They breathe that in. What does that smell like? It's a beach smell. Where does that beach smell take you? So not necessarily the funky aromatherapy stuff that, <laughs> you know, is, is really quite mind boggling with what senses and different flavors and such will do. Uh, but we know for a long time as therapists that sensory um, intervention or part of sensory activity helps us intervene uh, when people are not in a great place. 
Right. Interesting. Because I know I, I mentioned earlier about how uh, I, I used to work at a pop shop. It was my first job in high school and I was working on the line and it was in the warehouse. It was pop. They were making soda pop and there were forklifts driving around all the time. And the forklifts ran on propane mm. and propane exhaust has a really particular smell. And when I'd be walking down the street 20 years later, 25 years later, and all of a sudden I'd start thinking about the pop shop. And I, it was, yeah. oh yeah, I remember when I worked there. And then I, it would take me about two seconds. And then I realized it's because a taxi that ran on propane was idling right beside me as I'm standing on the corner. And I, I thought the memory came first and then the realization that it was the smell. It was very powerful. Yeah, very powerful. And I think that speaks to, uh, you know, to the concept that you shared with us before we got online here about how that helps with folks that are dealing with things like dementia and uh, memory, uh, you know, dealing with uh, memory loss, memory retention, um, you know, being able to take those smells back. And I tell you, that I used to work when my dad years ago, I used to work at the Globe and Mail. He got me a job late at night working in the press room. And the smell, I, now when I get my paper in the morning, because I still read the paper like an old guy, uh, the smell of ink every once in a while takes me back to those horrific middle of the night shifts that I couldn't stand for like two summers. Uh, but it was great money, you know, it was great money. But um, I, I think that helps us take us back to things we remember. And when we're doing therapy with people in, in, in the scheme of this conversation, when we're doing th uh, therapy with people and we can, we can uh, use things like aromatherapy and help them, you know, find themselves back to a smell they remember when they were a child. And can you relate that, that smell to when you felt safe? So that you can then relate, you know, feelings of comfort and safety and and mental and physical wellness with smells, with sounds, with visuals, right? Um, yeah, highly powerful stuff, you know. I, I and it goes the other way too, right? Lots of smells can turn you off, right? Uh, and shut yeah. you down, right? I guess. Uh, then, and I, I, or I was going to say, I guess, I guess that's sort of uh, evolutionary too, because because uh, a powerful, horrible smell. Uh, has a, just a huge impact on us, but I guess it's to stop us from eating whatever that is. It is. You know, I have patients that will call me and, and, and say, listen, I, I'm really having a hard time. You know, they've been triggered. Uh, they, they've been sober, let's say, uh, for, you know, or not using for a very long time and say, listen, I went to the dentist's office today and I walked in to get my teeth cleaned and all of a sudden I got a whiff and I, all I wanted to do was go find myself a bag of cocaine because there's certain certain of those, chemo those, those, I don't know, dentalish kind of smells i don't know what they actually are but you know they have that sensitive uh smell to certain people that makes them smell it smells of certain drugs alcohol you know when someone's dealing with um you know trying to stay sober and, and deal with uh, an alcohol use <clears throat> excuse me disorder you know the smell of alcohol can even 20 years of sobriety can trigger you back so you can hardly wait to find yourself in lcbo so it, it's as powerful on the negative side of our uh equation as it can be on the positive side yeah. And I guess cannabis, because you walk down the street now mm. and you get, the, and it's so powerful mm. and, you know, maybe it's not the most addictive thing, but it probably would remind you of a time when you were doing other illicit substances as well. Yeah. I had a patient call me about three weeks ago and she felt horrible. She came away from a, a weekend cottage retreat with a bunch of her uh, um, classmates from years ago. And there was a ton of pot and, and alcohol and whatever else going on. And it, it triggered a, a situation where she was physically abused and never dealt with it. And all of a sudden wow. she's like, you know, 
14, 16 years later, something like that. And it, it triggered her such that she couldn't sleep. She couldn't eat or she wasn't feeling well. And someone told her to reach out to me and we began, you know, having our, our, our therapeutic relationship. But, you know, it, it's crazy what, what I know as a therapist, I can't say crazy, but <laughs> it's really quite remarkable when things uh, trigger us to do great things and trigger us to do or think of doing not great things, even when we think we're way past it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned the thing at the, at the printing press and with me, it was working the at the shop. pop shop, both yeah. jobs. I'm guessing we both hated <laughs> exactly. and they were not, it was not my favorite thing to do was to go to this job. It was loud. It was hard work and stuff. But when I think about it now, it does calm me down and it makes me feel okay. So I guess it, it's a fine line between a bad triggering thing. And then I don't know, maybe it just makes you feel, it just reminds you of a time when you were younger. I don't ah, know. So it's that it's perfect. That's a great lead in. It's, it's, you know, it's that, it's that concept of cognitive behavioral therapy, finding the sunshine in a dark cloud, you know, thinking of that situation, not the horrible shifts that, that it presented, but the fun times it also represented and being able to take those, potentially negative triggering situations and turn them into something, you know, that positively triggers a memory. So it's a question of how you treat your baggage, right? So if you deal with your baggage over time, it doesn't really resurrect itself much later on. But if you've never dealt with your baggage, suddenly you open the suitcase and it stinks, right? And to, just to give you something in the aromatherapy field. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that we deal with our stuff when it comes up so that we can remember our memories or deal with our memories with the positive interactions, not the negative interactions. Right. I think that's such an excellent uh, metaphor for for what you do <laughs> is, is you open up the suitcase. <laughs> Sometimes it smells good. Other times it smells bad. And you, exactly. when it smells bad, you have to deal with it. Exactly. I, yeah. you know, I'm, the, I'm the guy you call when your suitcase stinks, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's you know, we talk about our childhoods and memories like you and I have, by the way, but we used to get pop from the pop shop. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the best cream soda ever. Yes. Uh, but, um, but did it stink, right? Like, yeah. I, could, oh, yeah. I could see as soon as you said pop shop, I could <laughs> smell cream soda, um, you know, and we're miles and miles apart. But I, I think I think it's really important for us to, rec to, to recognize through our lives as we go forward that all of the sensories are important. You know, my wife and I just finished a wonderful trip out towards your way. We went to, from Calgary to Banff and Lake Louise and Kelowna and Victoria and just the, did the, the, the drive along the beautiful roadways and mountainous area and, and the smells, the air was so much fresher and, and we took a lot of pictures. Um, but we also brought some things back, some fragrances that my wife found along the way in little boutique shops uh, that, you know, we kind of, she will spray a little bit and, and I, I I'm still fresh enough that some of those smells like ocean smells, for example, things that smell like ocean uh, for me, uh, take me to a very soft, even place, you know, calms me down uh, things related to water, uh, the smell of fresh snow uh, that, you know, that makes me for some reason feel calm. You know, there are smells. If you can concentrate on the ones that you like, then you can look at ways to emulate them when they're not available. Right. And you just kind of answered the question I was going to ask you, but I'll ask you it again anyway. Um, <laughs> as in terms of people's, you know, day to day mental health, what do you recommend uh, they do? Like, I guess, a, like a walk in the in the forest, the smell of that. I mean, what do you recommend for people in terms of sensory uh, sensations? What do you recommend for them to do on a daily basis? Well, I think uh, that's a great question. I think, first of all, you have to recognize what's what sensory 
you know, intervention or interactions are good for you? What do you like? Some people don't like the smell of fresh uh, trees or fresh cut grass, right? Depends on who you are. So get the, first of all, identify the things you like to smell, you like to hear, and you like to see. And if you can kind of put yourself into a position where at the end of the day or when you get the time throughout the day, if you have the fortune to good fortune to perhaps be working from home, to be able to reset your 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 uh, current state of mental health, your current uh, uh, position in terms of the things you might be worried about, the things you might be thinking about you could have done differently, how you're feeling about yourself in the moment in terms of self-respect and, and, and uh, confidence, and, and try to take yourself to a place where you can close your eyes and and either or keep your eyes open and see something on a screen, uh, be able to listen to the sounds that relate to that beautiful visualization and try to get something that smells like that. Uh, you know, the world of aromatherapy, you can you can get ocean smells, you can get the smell of fresh cut grass, you can get the smell of, of you know, fresh clean laundry, you know, whatever people, you know, be the smell of, of fresh baby powder. Um, there's certain things that make people feel better. Wrap yourself around that to the extent that you're able to afford those types of things and, and go and go there, go to your safe spot whenever you need to. Mm -hmm. And when I read this, this article about uh, how it was helping elderly people with memory and they think it might help with dementia, it, it kind of surprised me because when I, before I've heard the word aromatherapy for a very long time, but for me, it was all, it always sounded like you're in a yoga class and you're smelling nice things and it relaxes you, but it, it seems a little more profound than I gave it credit for. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you just nailed it, right? You're in a yoga class. It smelled great. The sounds were, the, the sounds were very yogi-y, right? So you felt like you could relax and stretch and kind of be at your best, right? It works perfectly by design, right? So if you can use things like smells that help people trigger their memory and memory for them is a challenge, then those those smells, those aromas, those sounds as well, you can use audio sensory as well. You know, you, all anything that takes you back to places that help you remember, you know, uh, that, you know, that you, you're, you know, some people deal with grief by continuing to have something around that smells like they're the deceased spouse or, or mom or dad or child. Right. Um, they keep these things around for a long time because it helps them take them back to good memories when they process it properly. Uh, it can also take you the other way if you don't process it properly. But the same too with people that have memory issues and, and are losing some connection to reality. Smells kind of overcome some of those mental uh, mental uh, uh, challenges that uh, the brain's not working as well. But it's, it's amazing what the what the smell and the hearing, what your ears and, and, and nose and, and eyes can send to your brain. They kind of have their own language. So it seems to work somehow. Yeah, you definitely hit on something with the the audio sensory sensations because uh, mu it seems like smell and music are both kind of magic. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. something about music. Does music uh, enter into your work with uh, therapy as well? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, not so much in the midst of of treatment, but uh, in in terms of the kind of homework uh, we ask people to do. So, for example, I have you know a patient is dealing with uh, suppressed feelings from their youth. We ask him to go back and like go back and get you know go to a soda shop. Like if you went used to go to a soda shop as a kid, go to a soda shop. You know, go get yourself a soda. Start playing some of the music you listened to as a kid. You remember? You remember your school prom? Like you know, it, as long as it's not triggering like horrible, you know, God forbid, horrible memories, but when people sort of lose touch of the goodness and the safety of their youth, 
as they get into their 20s and 30s, 30s and 40s. And sometimes we can take them back there when they don't think that they have the strength to survive today because they don't have that same comfort and safety. You take them back to a place where they were comfortable and safe. And then how did we get from there to today? And really, it's just a question of this, this, this and this. And you break those pieces down and it goes, yeah, you know, like, yeah, that is me. Right. Uh, to be without those barriers. So, right. yeah, it's uh, we do it all the time. Yeah. And also, I, I always hear about uh, older people because we were talking mm -hmm. about older people in memory, uh, mm -hmm. about how people with uh, dementia can listen to music and it often calms them down or it sort of anchors them, I guess. Yeah, again, it depends on the kind of the music. And if you're trying to trigger a memory or just provide soothing, you know, soothing audio, you know, background, right? So um, the kind of audio that you choose in therapeutic settings can can be uh, everything from, you know, memory inducing to just calming and, and, qui and quieting the mind based on the beat, based on the types of, of instruments used, based on whether it's vocal or not. All of those things make a difference in terms of how you're trying to help the patient arrange their mind and clear their opportunity for thinking. And do you think the future of therapy is going to be more this way? Because it seems like, you know, therapy is about talking. And I guess that's the basis for therapy is talking. But do you think more of this is going to creep into the world of therapy? Yeah, I think that there's going to be a time. I'm not sure I'll still be doing it, but there's going to be a time where, you know, your patient will put on a pair of artificial intelligence type type glasses that, you know, take them to a place that's pre-programmed and you talk them through the experience that they're going through when they were a child, for example, or, or the grief of a loss or, you know, an accident or seeing in a performance work, for example, seeing them on the podium, if it's athletic performance or seeing them with the big check, if it's financial performance, you know, I think by interacting with the, 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 um, uh, the technology of the future, along with good talk therapy, uh, I think together it's killer fascinating stuff and it's uh i guess it's all about opening that suitcase yeah, man. <laughs> and seeing how it smells <laughs> yeah. sooner, sooner or later it even seeps through the zippers so you can't keep it you can't keep it zipped long enough that's true you think you can but it's yeah. gonna get through the you know and then the it's gonna the shampoo's gonna spill there, and it's there you mess. go there well, you go yona bud it's uh such a pleasure to talk to you and uh you can be heard saturday evenings on the chorus radio network with at your best with yona bud uh thanks so much for talking to us that's great martin thanks so much for having me man this is the shift podcast Is China trying to infiltrate the hearts and minds of Canadians? Global Affairs Canada says a disinformation campaign has been launched against Conservative MP Michael Chong. He's been an outspoken critic of the Chinese government, especially on issues of human rights. And it's alleged that the Chinese government used the social media site WeChat to put that disinformation out about Chong. It seems pretty clear that the Chinese government has a large hand in controlling the content of WeChat, which is a Chinese company, which is used by people all over the world and by millions in Canada. In their investigation, Global Affairs Canada noticed a pattern of WeChat amplifying a lot of false or misleading narratives about Chong. They also noticed that two-thirds of news stories and social media posts were anonymous and had not previously published any news stories on Canadian politics before. And suddenly they're all interested in Canadian politics. So it's very suspicious. 
And to help us make sense of it all, we've asked our international affairs professional, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, to join us. Thank you for being here, Jonathan. Hi, uh, great to be back on. Yeah, so uh, let's get into these attacks against Michael Chong, this kind of uh, propaganda campaign. It happened on WeChat, which is a, a Chinese social media platform, but they have a few million people in Canada who are involved or who use it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just starting off there, I mean, WeChat... Uh, is such an all-purpose function. I mean, uh, when sometimes the comparisons we'll see in the in the popular media here would be to like a Facebook or a Twitter or an Instagram, but I think the best way to capture WeChat is it it takes part of all all elements of your life. So you know you can pay for things on WeChat. You can have your social communications um, on WeChat like you'd have on on Facebook or Instagram. You can get your news on WeChat uh, like you'd get uh, via Twitter. So. The reason I'm sort of mentioning this is it's a, sort of an all-encompassing uh, application. And you're right, um, it's not just used by those in China, even though it's a Chinese-made app, um, but made but used by a lot of uh, the diaspora. I mean, there's positives to it, of course. It's a great source of, of many uh, forms of information and Chinese language information, but also open and ripe uh, for, for disinformation. And that's what we found in this case um, uh, with parliamentarian uh, Michael Chong. Yeah. And, and I'd heard it was referred to as the app for everything. So like you say, it's not just Facebook, it's also PayPal and every, everything and even your phone. And so you combine that with a, an authoritarian government that uh, likes to have its hand in everything. It's a, a recipe for a privacy nightmare, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's big, uh, uh, you know, should be flashing red uh, warning signs here for many uh, in the West uh, when we think about, you know, different applications and different software. I think WeChat's one example. I mean, if you think about even today in Canada, you have your, your cell phone, your smartphone, how much information are we either willingly or unwillingly giving away of our own data? Um, and then you think of one application uh, like WeChat, which would have, which would, you know, culminate uh, many of the different applications like your banking app, your your social messaging app, your email app. If all of those were put into one super app, and and uh, and and one of the developers had all of that information, it's extremely powerful. And then, as you mentioned, Martin, you put on top of that a, a state that has been known to surveil uh, to use that for its own sort of uh, purposes uh, is extra scary. So uh, the last point I would note on this is too is WeChat is not exclusively used by uh, by Chinese or Chinese diaspora. It's it's become a popular app for for many uh, foreigners and and especially other countries that that China has invested in. So I think it's another form of China ex expanding out its influence and, and that data sort of net in order to get information and data on on other foreign nationals that may not be Chinese. Yeah, definitely worth being being very wary of, I guess. So so let's get to these attacks against uh, Michael Chong, uh, this kind of propaganda campaign, I guess it was. And, and so basically it was just misinformation alleged that was meant to discredit uh, Chong here in Canada, I guess. Yeah, and I think a lot of this roots back. So, you know, it's a little bit distinct, but related to, uh, I think, big in the news, obviously, with Chinese political interference was the was the more serious, in a way, uh, personal threats to uh, to Michael Chong and his family members, as some of them uh, back in China and Hong Kong. Um, and that was something that was dealt with relatively seriously. Finally, after you know much pressure, the government decided to persona non grata. In other words, kick one of the uh, the consulate members out, which was which attributed to this um, this harassment. Um, so this is a, another form of that. 
Um, it's another form of harassment. It's 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 throwing different stories, narratives out uh, over uh, his his background, um, trying to harm his credibility. And the reason I think that the Chinese would have an interest in doing this is because Michael Chong has acted for several years as a you know shadow foreign minister, has been very critical on on several issues that are uh, you know linked to China's core interests. Um, I think one example was uh, the Uyghur genocide in the west of China. Um, Michael Chong and, and most conservatives voting in favor of, of a motion in parliament to declare that a genocide. So all of these things tally up uh, and the Chinese are not happy about that and want to find ways to intimidate and, and harm his credibility. Yeah. And let's talk about that Uyghur situation. I mean, it, it is in the news. You do see it, but it seems like we don't see enough of it. And basically, the Uyghurs are uh, an ethnic group in China, and there's stories of forced labor and uh, forced sterilization, concentration camps and that stuff. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel it's something that uh, needs to be a little bit more publicized in the West? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, fundamentally, when we talk about our national interests and our values, I mean, human rights, I think, is 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 lumped in with both of them. I mean, the idea that it's a, it's an optional thing in, in foreign policy that we we talk about it when we need to. But other times we just sort of, you know, uh, uh, divert our eyes. Uh, I, I don't think that that's uh, number one ethically right. But I actually think it harms our interests in the long run, too. Um, I think why we haven't, getting to your question, why we haven't been hearing as much of this uh, of late is, number one, even on the China file, there's so many issues um, of contention. Uh, we have our own bilateral issues, obviously, with detained citizens. We have broader macro-national security issues with the way that China is weaponizing trade, uh, some of the digital digital threats that we've already talked about. And then we have the regional threats, um, Taiwan, for example, uh, tensions over Taiwan, South China Sea, another waterway where there's been tensions. So it, it, this is an important issue, but uh, the reason I'm saying that there's so many issues uh, around China um, that we're concerned about and our allies are concerned about about that i think that um unfortunately in the in the 24 7 news cycle uh, sometimes the, uh, the the horrific things that are happening in xinjiang don't pop up and a last point i would say on this is globally you you put on top of this and not just what's happening in china's periphery but the, the russia's war in ukraine etc um unfortunately we're losing sight on this uh, which is which is not a good thing because um, the atrocities that are happening, you know, the repression of, of, of you know, the Uyghurs there is is continuing at pace and actually increasing, uh, and we need more attention there. Yeah, and and is there any indication, and I'm guessing the answer is no, that China is hearing these complaints from, from other countries, or do you think they're just uh, taking advantage of the fact, like you say, the, the news cycle is pretty much consumed by other things? I think this goes, uh, you know, cynically, I think this goes in one ear or the other. I think the Chinese, um, even if they, you know, would sit in a chair and listen to it, I think any sort of criticisms on this, I mean, what China consistently talks about is uh, their own internal uh, sovereignty and their own, uh, you know, not interfering in other in others. Uh, systems, um, which is ironic because they <laughs> they interfere consistently in other systems, in, including Canada's. Um, but I think that that's their maxim, obviously, that they talk about when dealing with other states. So I think when when people bring up what they consider quote unquote internal issues, um, they just have no time for it. Basically, they you know um, they will talk about counterterrorism operations and say that you know there's there's threats to the internal stability of China, which is completely blown out of proportion. Um, but the, the other sort of uh, flip side of this coin, too, is that 
you have so many states, um, you know, especially those outside of the European Union and you know Canada and the U.S., uh, who will not mention this at all because of the fear of, of economic retaliation from China. Even uh, very significant states in the Muslim world, which is which is uh, very disappointing considering the Uyghur um, uh, you know minority there in China um, is uh, of a Muslim denomination, and uh, and there's those whether it's Turkey, whether it's Saudi Arabia other large states in the region uh, have sort of basically dismissed this and and lo lo looked at the bigger economic uh, sort of engagement with China, which, you know, which I think should be judged as well. Yeah, and it, I guess Canada's relationship with China has really been tested in that way in the last couple of years. It all kind of came to a head with the two Michaels, uh, the two, uh, I guess, political prisoners, we'll call them that, who were finally released. Uh so what is the current sort of uh, temperature of, of that relationship between Canada and China in your mind right now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there were some that thought uh, and maybe some business interests that have, uh, have had long stakes in China and political interests, too, that probably thought that the Michaels returning was a pivot point um, where, you know, not back to normal. But I mean, there was a there was a hope and probably a naivety among some that this could be turning the corner and you could tell the Chinese were trying to signal, you know, now uh, we can start over again. Um, but I think the reality is, no, we can't. And it's not just this one incident, but it's more structural issues. Many of them we've talked about. We've talked about some of the regional security issues that our allies are facing. We talked about um, things happening in China um, and other issues. So I think what has actually happened is rather than this being a pivot point where you would hinge relationship in a better sense, it's actually allowed the relationship to get even worse. Um, and some of those levers that Canada, I think, was risk averse to push on um, while the Michaels were detained because they didn't want things to get worse for them. Um, you're seeing Canada be much more forceful. Um, one example, I think, of this was the releasing of a, a regional strategy and a, a quote unquote Indo-Pacific strategy that was released last November. Uh, and that the heart of that strategy was basically calling out Chinese behavior, um, calling them a disruptive actor uh, globally and, uh, and many other things. So, you know, it's not perfect, but I think that the policy is, is step by step getting getting a little bit uh, harder. Yeah. And moving forward, do you see the way this is all playing out, the way countries, especially China and I guess Russia, have infiltrated social media and that kind of online information. Um, are you surprised or are you just expecting more and more of this? And is this the new, you know, modern information age battlefield now, online stuff, social media? Yeah, I think I think it is. And I mean, there's, of course, there can be many benefits of it. But I think uh, what the Russians and the Chinese and other actors have been in this space too have capitalized on number one is that, uh, especially at a younger generation, I mean, people are not getting their news from a, you know, a paper delivered to their door or a magazine that they pick up at a Indigo um, bookstore, you know, they're, they're getting it uh, online, and they're not even sometimes getting it uh, at, at online news sites that have been there for, you know, 100 years or 50 years, but sometimes on Instagram, on Twitter, on WeChat. Um, so that opens up to, especially when you have a variety of different sources and the way that you can dress up, uh, you know, web pages, et cetera, um, you can make news very attractive and, and seem legitimate. 
um, you know, especially to a reader who may not be fully immersed in the topic. Um, so that we have definitely seen the Russians, I think, playing a little bit more in this space earlier than the Chinese. But now the Chinese are really starting to catch up and realizing um, that they can have a have a have an impact. I think that the, the last point I'll make on this, the difference between the two was that the Russians initially, I think, wanted to do things to to sort of uh, sow, sow doubt uh, within liberal democracies. So you saw this, for example, whenever there was tensions within the United States on, on gun related issues, on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the Russian disinformation would, would look to sort of target that and look to sort of magnify those divisions. Whereas I think the Chinese original approach was focused more on ensuring uh, the lack of dissent on Chinese, China and core national issues. So rather than sort of spreading illiberal issues in in the West, uh, they that was their approach. But I think they're changing now. I think they're starting to realize uh, a lot of the the Russian playbook, and that should be a worry for us all. Yeah, yeah. Because if if the Russian government wanted to kind of break the United States up, or at least you know make it weak and uh, disassemble it, um, and whether whether they had a big part of it or whether the American people themselves. <laughs> did it to themselves, but it worked. And uh, I mean, obviously it's a very divided culture and we're seeing it around the world. And I guess uh, for China, like you say, they're realizing that uh, the less stable the big Western democracies are is probably better for them. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, you know, what this leads to, there's no vaccine, there's no sort of one shot uh, silver bullet here to to prepare us. But I think resilience is is what often people refer to is having some sort of digital literacy, um, you know, informing, especially, uh, you know, our youth as they're being educated on, on, you know, what could be the traps for disinformation, what could be uh, certain rabbit holes that you would, you would go down. Um, we're not going to be able to stamp it out. We're not going to be able to, you know, have everyone as a geopolitical expert or an expert on Russia or China. That shouldn't be the point, but I think that the point should be um, to at least at a, at a general surface, be able to filter out, uh, you know, that top 60% of disinformation um, and then make them work harder, make them work harder to, uh, um, because they're going to keep trying. Um, so we have to build that resilience. Yeah. And it's not really something you can legislate, I guess. You, I mean, you can't control information. No, and I mean, that's, again, they've played on the, the the vulnerability and one of the great things about Western society is our, our openness, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of platforms. Um, they've, they've played into that space and we don't want to change our own, um, you know, societies. We will have to amend and adapt, but I think we don't want to fundamentally change the, the values that we we are enshrined in, in in many of our societies just because of of this. So we it's a very careful sort of high wire act that I think that we have to manage. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see these the the fact that Meta, uh, Facebook, and Instagram and Google have pulled news from these Canadian social media sites. Um, it'll be interesting to see what effect that has. I wonder if maybe that will will sort of change the landscape a little bit. Maybe people will start getting their news outside of social media. Who knows? Maybe it could be good. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of different elements on this, but I think us being unfortunately left out of a lot of, as much as there's problem with big tech, as much as there's, they've been open to disinformation as well. Um, us sort of completely casting ourselves uh, on the outside. And if you even think, of, for example, the Australians who have went through a bit of a fight with the big tech companies on this, being able to carve out some sort of a deal um, where they could you know, continue to have some Canadian content, 
on those platforms. I think, you know, we have been very stubborn on this point. So I think there's, there, there probably was a negotiation or I hope there might still be a negotiation to be made there, but I do take your point. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you so much. It's always interesting to talk to you, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, uh, some great insight on what's going on around the globe. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Martin. This is the shift podcast. Are you, are you, are you, okay. 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 Are you okay with, are you okay with weddings? Yeah. It's been way too long since I've been to a wedding. All my friends got married in the course of like a year. And then now I'm just kind of sitting here. Yeah. I remember not financially able or ready <laughs> to get married. So I remember when uh, I was young, there were a million people and they all got married like at the same time. It was like one summer every week. It was a wedding. Yeah. And that's the best way to have your summer because weddings are awesome. I mean, most weddings, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just a party. It's a celebration of love of friendship, you know, and all that. And, you know, you kind of put everything aside to just have fun. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the dangerous, most dangerous combination is when your, uh, best friend gets married and then he makes you the MC of your wedding. And then he gives you a flask filled with Jack Daniels and you have a very busy day and then by the end of the day, you realize the flask is empty. And that was the last wedding I went to. And so I'm going to avoid weddings like that because, uh, yeah, you uh, when you're at an environment like that, the party is just like unlike anything you'll ever experience. It's just a special kind of party. Wow. So so you drank the Jack Daniels is what you're saying. I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was a lot more than that, too. And you emceed <laughs> it. So did, was it like like did you did you get real with the people? Well, so I'll never like the opening was like really heartfelt, you know, you know, my best friend, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I love you very much, you know, and then a poking kind of fun. And then <laughs> by the time it was re- everybody was ready for the first dances, I was basically like, and it's time for dance. <laughs> I basically had no words left to say and there were no words coming out properly. So, yeah, I uh, that that's a caveat. I will emcee your wedding. But mm-hmm. I can't promise that it'll be, you know, professional by the end of the night. Well, there's an old saying that uh, it's good luck at your wedding if Ryan O'Donnell is drunk. Uh, apparently. <laughs> and there's another. Oh, God, I hope so. There's another old saying that if it rains on your wedding, that's good luck. Yeah, I've heard that. It did rain at my buddy's wedding. And I'm trying to remember if it rained at both of them. But it definitely has rained at a couple of weddings that I've been to. Yeah. And do you think it's good luck if your wedding floods and a bear eats your dessert table? (laughs) Uh, No, that sounds like a sketch out of SNL. Yeah, it does. Uh, Kaylin McCrossy-Martinez and Brandon Martinez shared some photos from their Colorado wedding, which took an unplanned turn when monsoon rains began to fall right before they exchanged vows. And that was just the beginning. We had gotten through, I don't know, maybe a third of the ceremony speech I guess and then we were gonna go do our vows and that's actually when it really just started coming down (laughs) so by the time it started pouring rain on us in the middle of the ceremony us and all of our guests were soaking wet um but it was awesome it was totally awesome (laughs) it was great (laughs) 
But the night wasn't over yet, just as the dancing had started. Hey, bear. It's not too often uh, you go in to your dessert table and see a bear crashing it and <laughs> eating all of it. Um, I think next that went out were the lemon bars and then the cannolis, which we were most looking forward to the cannolis. Um, unfortunately, we did not get any. It's just kind of how this day ended up playing out, you know? There's just bear on top of the table. <laughs> It's just kind of the next thing that happened. The couple says staff security shoot the bear quickly and nobody got hurt. And I was like, of course, of course this is happening. Like, you know, a monsoon to go with the bear. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Um, the perfect Colorado wedding. Of all the chapters in their story so far. Yeah, this takes the cake, literally. Yeah. And, and the worst thing, the bear didn't even bring a present. So. Yeah. That was Come on. tacky. Uh, that was from KUSA-TV. Uh, Macrossi Martinez said it ended up being the perfect Colorado wedding. Uh, she said, life doesn't always go to plan, but it's how you get through it together. I mean, that's a great wedding. How, I mean, you, you'll yeah. be talking about that forever. Exactly. You'll never forget it. And it's how you handle that. Because if you handle it like my day is ruined, awful, all that, it's going to be the worst day of your life. But if you see the rain and you see the thing, you just kind of go with it and be like, eh, whatever you're going to have the, what you'll take away from that day is, is very different. It's uh, yeah. I think it, this is a great lesson for um, your wedding will not be perfect. Yeah. Like no matter how hard you try, the more you try, it's probably the less perfect it's going to be prepare for some stuff to go wrong and uh, and embrace it when it does, because that's also marriage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And Ryan, how about this? Are you okay yeah. with fishing? I, I love to fish. As I've stated many times, though, I've, I've uh, embarrassingly never caught a fish in my life. Um, never been able to. I've tried many times. But I love the actual act of fishing. I love getting up super early. And, you, get, you know, you go to Tim Hortons, you get the coffee, you set up shop, the, the sun is just up, it's like five o'clock in the morning, you throw the line, you sit down, and you just kind of relax, and then you catch something, throw it back in. I think that is the best, like, um, country sort of, like, I don't even want to call it redneck, it's not redneck, just like outdoors activity. It's probably my favorite outdoor activity I don't do enough. And I think actually that I might be able to do some coming up in a few weeks here. And I'm really hoping that I finally catch a stupid fish because yeah. it's, it's evaded me for a long time now. Oh, it's, it's, it's so much fun to catch a fish. But when you think about the, the ratio of sitting there doing nothing to actually reeling in a fish, it's, it's all waiting around. And, and I, I think that's what's so great about it. Yeah, yeah. And even like what you make out of that, um, that day or that experience, you know, because the last time I went fishing, me and my friends, we all just sat by the water. It's so calm and quiet. You chat. You just kind of enjoy being outside where the weather's nice. And you just, you know, you just enjoy that time. You let your guard down a little bit. And uh, if you catch a fish, that's a bonus part. That's kind of the way I look at it. Maybe that's just because I've never caught one. And I'm terrible <laughs> at it, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. No. There's nothing like I don't want to brag, but uh, catching a 30 pound salmon is pretty awesome. But that would be amazing. 
but I also had a guide who helped me every step of the way. <laughs> well, that's that's okay. I mean, uh, that's that's you still caught it. Yeah. Know? No, I did. I, I still reeled it in and uh, kept the lines tight, and it was it was pretty cool. Um, and you never know what you're going to catch. Uh, especially if you're in, you know, more exotic locales. The mayor of Tampa Bay was fishing uh, with her family when she stumbled across a massive uh, package floating in the water. It was filled with cocaine. Well, a fishing trip to the Keys and an unusual catch for Tampa Mayor Jane Castor. She said took her back to her days in narcotics with Tampa police. Look at this. The mayor and her family say they reeled in 70 pounds of cocaine floating out in Atlanta. Of all people. Of all people. The mayor said, based on her previous experience, looked like it had been in the water for some time since the plastic you can see was tearing away here. Took a few people to get those drugs into the boat and after retrieving it, also came with some concern from her family. And so for me, it wasn't, you know, my family was concerned, like, oh my gosh, what if they think it's ours? I'm like, oh, come on. So we pulled it up and then as soon as we were in, cell phone range just to, to call and notify them. Customs and Border Patrol, they did seize the drugs and yeah. later posted the picture here of the discovery. Estimated value, more than a million bucks. Mayor said the rest of the vacation went pretty uneventful, though. They're just some fishing and catching lobster. And it goes without saying, this happened in Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida, straight drip. Yeah, and, and you know that mayor, uh, before she became mayor, she spent 31 years with the Tampa Police Department, and she served in pretty much in every capacity and in nearly every neighborhood in the city. Yeah, so she would have seen lots of lots of cocaine. Yeah. And so that's pretty lucky that she would have known what to do, who to call. And uh, I like I would be the kids too. Are people going to think this is ours? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think so. But I would probably have that little bit of a panic, honestly. Yeah. Are you okay with two on one? Uh, you know, I, I like two on one hockey a lot. Those uh, mm -hmm. those moments where you know you got two people chasing down the one guy, yeah. and then there's the goaltender, and uh, nine times out of ten they like trip the person, and it's a penalty shot, or two people on one on the goalie, and then the goalie makes that diving save to try to drive, you know, get the puck. That is like peak, peak sports stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like the ultimate, uh, ultimate challenge. And mm -hmm. it's uh, even like in video games, the, the video games I play, if there's an opportunity when I'm alone against two, two other people, I'm going to, I'm going to try to step up or I'm going to panic and completely throw, which I mo do more often than not. But it's, uh, it's a unique situation to be in. You know, you don't want to be there, but if you come out on top, it's a pretty awesome feeling. Yeah, and I remember when I was a kid, uh, if two people were picking on one person or some sort of fight was going on, that was a really bad thing. It was a two against one, two against one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a woman in Texas uh, was trapped in a very unfair two against one fight last month. Uh, she was attacked. This is like the coolest thing I've read in a long time. Uh, she was attacked by both a snake and a hawk while mowing her lawn last month. Uh, Peggy Jones, a 64-year-old from Silsby, Texas, was working in her yard on the evening of uh, July 25th when a snake fell from the sky 
and wrapped around her arm. So that's weird enough. A snake falls out of the sky and wraps around your arm. And uh, it, it uh, would be quite terrifying, I'm, I'm sure, for the woman. She defied the event or did, uh, described the event as a freak incident to local media but because what happened was it would be weird enough that a snake falls out of the sky and wraps around your arm. And the thing was probably the snake was wrapped around her arm, not because it was trying to kill her or something. It was trying to get away from a hawk, which then swooped down after the snake to retrieve its lost dinner. It was like I couldn't believe what was happening. Peggy Jones of Silsby was mowing the back six acres of her home on Tuesday, August 1st, when a snake fell down onto her from above. He was starting to dart at my face and come into my face, and he was striking my glasses. And he just kept on and kept on, and I just couldn't get rid of the snake. And it was just, it was like, I think I went into survival mode. Dawn says a hawk then came down and pulled the snake from her arm, but not before leaving severe cuts and puncture wounds. The hawk came down four times to get the snake off of my arm. When I looked down, I had blood all over my clothes. I had blood all over my arm. My arm was torn to shreds and I had severe bruising. Jones's husband took her to Altus Emergency Room in Lumberton, where they learned she hadn't been bitten by the snake, but it had done damage to her glasses. Lumberton, just like in Twin Peaks. Wow, I, d I just think that's the craziest thing. Uh, it's just the image of the snake, and I'm glad if she was wearing glasses to protect her eyes. Because yeah. the snake, you know, that's one thing. But it's just like, um, uh, you know, there was this TV show that I definitely should not have watched as a kid called A Thousand Ways to Die. And it was mm. like the show that would animate the most bizarre probably made up like deaths in history and it's see this story sounds like something off of that show and it's amazing that uh that interview with her you know she's obviously caught up and shaken but she's okay she in her 60s survived being attacked by a snake and a hawk at the same time that is just so so unbelievably impressive yeah and at the time just so random because when you're mowing yeah. the lawn you don't expect a snake to fall from the sky and then have yep, the snake yep. hang on to you for dear life because this if the snake lets go of your arm the snake knows it's going to die instantly and uh and then the hawk is trying to get the snake but the snake won't go off your arm just a no, i was going to say hilarious not hilarious it's a horrifying thing but just so weird and just so strange okay are you okay with sculptures yeah yeah i think uh we're lucky here in calgary there's a lot of really amazing sculptures everybody makes fun of the giant blue ring right <laughs> blue ring funny um but there's a lot of great public art across this country and i think my favorite that i've seen in person is the giant uh, mother spider in front of the national gallery in Ottawa that you see in like textbooks. The thing's creepy and I can't help but like stare at it whenever I see it. I don't know why we decided to put a giant spider in front of our national art gallery, but I'm glad we did because it's pretty sweet. Yeah. I, I like, I like that kind of stuff in Vancouver at Olympic village where there's all these apartment buildings and then there's this sort of public square 
a sculptor. I guess she's more of an artist. She does these big, uh, big installations. Her name is Mafonwe, and she does. She made these huge, big birds, and they're like. Uh, they're, they're like little tiny birds that you would see f- flying around that look so beautiful, like little swallows and, you know, little orange birds and stuff. But they're huge. They're like, I don't know, like 25 feet high. And so they look kind of sweet and beautiful and terrifying at the same time. They look like, like they're dinosaurs or something. And uh, I just think it's such a great use of of public space to kind of ponder and look at these birds. And I just love these sculptures. Um, but uh, you can make, uh, use anything to make a sculpture, you know, like stone, um, ice, marble, uh, butter. Uh, the state of Illinois just unveiled its annual butter sculpture, and it's enormous. Even their governor was there to celebrate it. The unveiling of the official and world's best, in my opinion, butter cow. Hard to see there because the glass is all steamed, but there's a better view. It's inside the dairy building at the fairgrounds where fresh cream puffs and ice cream will be awaiting. Sarah Pratt sculpted the bovine using the theme Grow With Us. It brings together the interaction between the farmer, the land, and the animal. Sarah could not have done a better job with this scene and bringing this scene to life. Illinois has long stood as a beacon of progress, of innovation, and of opportunity, with agriculture as the backbone of all of our achievements here. The sculpture is made of 500 to 800 pounds of unsalted butter, and the first butter cow was unveiled in 1922. That from Fox 32. And butter carving was an ancient craft in Tibet, Babylon, Roman Britain, and elsewhere. And the earliest documented butter sculptures date from Europe in 1536, where they were used on banquet tables. Uh, This is The Shift. I'm Martin Strong, along with Ryan O'Donnell, and Jono is uh, behind the board. And when we come back, uh, I want to hear from you, 877-399-9898. Uh, we're talking about smells or anything that's on your mind. Uh, uh, and somebody, somebody wrote, if a snake fell on me, nobody would hear about it because I would die instantly from a heart attack, which seems kind of reasonable. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.